I don't know what things are like in your house, but I'm guessing they aren't very different from ours. Kids saying, I'm hungry, and what are we having? And you trying to decide what you can make in a short period of time, what they'll actually eat, what they'll eat without complaining, what's totally nutritious, what's totally balanced from what they've eaten the rest of the day. Of course, the likelihood of finding all of that is the same as finding your fairy godmother in the pantry. But it means you've spent some time thinking, and then looking, and then wondering, and then looking some more, and then maybe deciding on what you're going to have. But that isn't the only time you think about food. You actually think about it some 200 times a day. Am I going to have yogurt? What kind of yogurt am I going to have? What flavor yogurt am I going to have? What am I going to put on my yogurt? Is that going to be granola or cereal? So then which cereal am I going to put on it? Will I put fruit on it? What fruit will I put on it? Will I cut the fruit? Will I add syrup? Like... All of those, I mean, think about when you went to the buffet today, you know, did you think about, oh, am I going to have the turkey bacon or this bacon? Should I have both? Should I have a piece of both? Or should I have two pieces of both? Like, you're not actually thinking about that, but subconsciously. That's Dara, who, as you heard, I ran into at a buffet line. She's a dietitian, and we'll talk to her more in a little bit. But what she talks about doesn't include the decisions you make in the grocery store, and when you're going to eat out, where you'll eat out, and once you get to eating out, what you'll actually have to eat, and what kind of dressing to have, and will you have gravy on that, and do you have room for dessert? Let's be honest, deciding what to eat can be so terribly exhausting. I'm Andrew Campbell, and this is Food Bubble. Today, we ask the question, why is it so hard to decide what's for dinner? After all, a study in the U.S. found the average person spends 132 hours every year just deciding what to eat. Over a third of couples say they have a terrible time deciding where they should eat when they go out, and a quarter of people say they feel trapped in some purgatory because their significant other can't make up their mind on what to have. So with all the choice we have around us, are we actually drowning trying to figure out what to have? Is there a better way to do all of this? Or are things just going to keep getting worse? Those are the questions for the day. So if you think you can make up your mind, settle in with a snack and let's get some answers. Trillium Mutual Insurance is your ag insurer of choice in Ontario. They're farm insurance professionals who specialize in and understand Ontario agriculture, providing insurance solutions that are the best in the industry. We all know that insurance can be complicated, but does it have to be? Their real Ontario farm insurance brokers make it simple for you, providing the coverage you deserve. To find a broker partner near you, please visit their website, trilliummutual.com, and follow them on Facebook and Twitter at Trillium Mutual. As Dara said earlier, we face some 200 food-related decisions every day. She's a registered dietitian and half of the team behind the site howtoeat.ca. Some of those decisions we don't notice. Others, we revolve around the house, looking in every nook and cranny for inspiration. Why is that? People just become polarized with, you know, what to feed their families. They want to do the best that they can for their families, and they think it always has to be the very, very best. And with everything you read out there and all the options in the grocery store, you know, I get confused when I go to the grocery store and the labels on the food, like, I have to Google what they mean. And so the average consumer is going there thinking they have to read all of those labels and, and choose the best one. It's, you know, it's frightening for them, and it's hard. So I think that's, that's the big problem. Mike agrees. My name is Mike von Massow, and I'm an associate professor in food, agriculture, and resource economics at the University of Guelph, and I am the OAC chair in food systems leadership. 
For Mike, that challenge in making decisions goes back to a few reasons that are far from the kitchen. That decision has become more complex. And that decision has become more complex because of the dispersion in, uh, in what's available to us. So it's not just what should we eat based on what we feel like. It's the decision before that. What have we brought into the house? What is important to us? Uh, you know, frequently, I always say the best predictor of what you're going to buy in the grocery store is what you bought last time. So the changes happen slowly. But we're getting bombarded with information, there, and when we're not bombarded with it, we have uh, a huge pool of information on the internet and other places that we can go try and learn more. That makes a difference. And and the the other thing is that we have more choice. You know, when uh, when I was a kid, going out was a rare treat. Now, Canadians spend almost 40% of their food dollar outside the home. So it's not only what we have for dinner, but where we're going to go for that dinner. Uh, uh, that, that becomes an important consideration. In the U.S., in fact, more than 50% of the food dollar is spent on food prepared outside the home because we're now getting that blurring uh, of of retail and food service as we've got these delivery apps, at least in urban centers, the venues, uh, both for purchasing and eating food, are changing. So, so the decisions become way more complex. There's a lot in there, Mike, so let's pull that apart. Let's start with a why. Is this a case that because we are much more diverse in a population, we have choice? Is it because food gets shipped around the world more? Why are there so many more choices? Well, I think it's all of the above. The globalization of the food system means we have more choice, right? When I was a kid... I'd never seen an avocado, right? There are all sorts of things that we are now trans with, with the advent of refrigerator trucks and all sorts. Of, so it becomes easier to transport. We've gotten freer trade. There are, there, there are just more opportunities to bring things in. I think that that, I also believe that uh, we've come a long way in, in terms of our openness to a diversity of cultural foods. Um, you know, when I grew up in Western Canada, every town had a, uh, had a Chinese restaurant, but other than that, everything else was meat and potatoes. Now you can go to many of these small communities, never mind what you can get in an urban center, you can get many of these small communities, you can get all sorts of things. We have an out, I live in Alora, we have an outstanding Indian place. We have, you know, all sorts of things. So part of it is as, as Canada's diverse population has uh, has grown we've seen a lot more choice from that television and media makes a big difference too food network and th and those sorts of things where people can see and hear about other choice other products and then maybe take the opportunity to try them and and now stuff is mainstream in the in the grocery store frankly some of the stuff, I think, is also driven by noise in the media. Which study has come out or, or this or that? You know, we've seen a, a big buzz about the new food guide and, and some people in agriculture are worried about it. You know, we won't hear anyone say food guide again for the next three to four years, I doubt. Or, and, and so uh, this stuff boils up. We also, I think, see 
uh, things like these hidden videos where uh, particularly egregious uh, production practices are highlighted and that becomes the reality for some people. And so that those sorts of events, especially if they're repeated, and then if they're repeated, and then we see companies say, oh, we don't do that, Here's, here are some differences, can help drive some of that change. And, and maybe this is a little bit off topic, but it gets to the value of podcasts like this. I've seen you speak, some of the things I say, that, that, that the conversation is happening regardless uh, Agriculture and and food processors and food purveyors need to get up and tell their story because they're going to hear consumers are hearing stories from other people regardless. So that if we have so much choice, when did this happen? Was there a time when choice overwhelmed us and made these decisions so much harder? Fundamentally, Andrew, I don't think we can point to a specific moment in time and say that's when things went to hell in a handbasket, or that's when this fundamentally changed. What we're seeing, I think, is an evolution in how people are making choices and, then, and, and in the choices that they're making. Uh, and so uh, it, it almost has snuck up on us. And, and, and many of us are going, okay, what happened? Things are, are dramatically different, but I think it's hard to point to a single action. I think the other thing that's important is that uh, a big part of what's happened is that evolution has happened and uh, we've gotten a wider spread of consumers. I think, I, I, as I said earlier, there is no the consumer. So while uh, I'm, I'm of a, a perhaps an older vintage than you are, and, and I can remember back when really there was much less choice because most of us made much more similar what much more similar decisions now there is this this abundance of choice not because us we as individuals want more choices it's more because we as individuals want different things and the people supplying us have to give us more more choice and that becomes that becomes a struggle whether you're in restaurants or retail in 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 striking the right balance and not overwhelming us. Okay, so we all want different things. Are there specific things that you think people are demanding more than they have been in the past? The biggest one is sort of uh, the changing demand for protein. Uh, and part of that is driven by a, a variety of things. Part of it is driven by welfare. And you and I have had conversations in the past about animal welfare. And, and, and I think it's profoundly poorly understood. And I think that there's lots of inconsistent and often inaccurate information out there, but that's driving it to a degree as our population gets older, they're eating smaller portions. Uh, we, we generally like variety. Uh, we're told uh, that we should probably eat less red meat, although the truth is we should probably eat less processed meat. Uh, and that, that, uh, that in many cases, uh, red meats and, and even chicken are nutrient dense and, and are very good for us. But we're seeing sort of a much greater, both range of choice and, and difference in how people are making choices. We're seeing sort of the rise of plant-based protein. I think that that's probably the biggest one we're seeing. Now, 
that doesn't mean the entire world is going vegan. And I think often that the that the the agriculture industry focuses on that vegan group and says they're the you know and and we see some high profile people in the media celebrities and stuff talking about veganism we know and we've you know we know that you know sort of five percent of the population is vegetarian less than three are are vegan and we've done a survey lately and and got exactly those sorts of numbers but what's interesting in another part of the survey we ask people uh how many times a month do you eat a main meal uh that doesn't have animal protein in it. And, uh, you know, we get a range of things. And what's interesting is 40% of the vegans answer that they eat meat occasionally. And 65% of the vegetarians answer that they eat meat occasionally. So I think we have some people who are saying, oh, well, everyone tells me this is a good thing. That's what I should do, but it's really hard to do. And so the actual numbers of vegans and vegetarians is probably smaller than many of us think the many of us think it is. And and we've got this great large group in the middle that are saying, well, we still like to eat meat, we still like to eat red meat, but we're going to eat more variety and we're probably going to have one or two meals a month that that maybe are a plant-based protein. So I think that that's probably the biggest one. Okay, that's the biggest, Mike. What else do you see as a big issue that's impacting what consumers are asking for? Again, you and I have had a conversation about is is uh, is GMOs. Although to a significant degree, I think it's uh, it's overstated. Uh, we've done some work recently here and put GMO labels on some food products had almost no impact on on demand. So I don't think that there are a lot of people thinking about. GMOs. There are a small, uh, very vocal group that are thinking about it and and are making choices driven by it. There is also a group there that are influenced by, uh, to a degree, uh, either truthful or specious claims, uh, and and uh, and and that is there, but not huge. I think in the future, one that's going to be really interesting that's related to GMOs is this whole gene editing CRISPR technology. Uh, just because it's different, the science is different, although that will be hard to articulate to a consumer, but also because we have the opportunity here to to create benefits that accrue to the consumer directly, you know, more healthful, more flavorful, longer lasting, are all benefits that accrue to the consumer and therefore may actually have a different perception. So now you've made some subtle comments, Mike, as we've gone through this. Vocal people thinking about GMOs, misunderstanding about animal welfare, hearing to eat less red meat when maybe it should be more focused on less processed meats. I guess I want to go back to what you said earlier about being bombarded with information when all of this does seem likely to be connected with things people see, things people hear, things people talk about. And at the end of the day, you know, it's just so confusing. I guess I'm wondering, how do you break through that information overload? And is it even possible when you're looking for information on food to actually find truthful and honest stuff out there? I think it is possible. I think it's tough. So the first thing I would say is, is, is look at multiple locations for information. Hear multiple perspectives and then drill down and figure out 
which ones are credible, and which, you know, in the end, there's always going to be some subjectivity. There is even subjectivity in science. Uh, we don't have unanimity on many things. We'll have, we'll have studies. Now, in some cases, the evidence is more overwhelming than others. Uh, but but so, so the first thing is find some sites, evaluate whether you or, or some sources, evaluate whether you think they are credible, and then see if there are other places supporting them. The biggest problem we have today, and this isn't related just to food, is that people have this confirmation bias and go looking for information that supports their opinion, and we get in this echo chamber and we don't hear other perspectives. So take a look at conflicting information and then make a decision for yourself. That's not always easy, uh, and and there are clearly people uh, who are out there, uh, I think, telling a balanced story. <laughs> you and I, as an example, not to blow our own horns too much, uh, but I think there are places you can go, and there are things that you can do, uh, and and in the end, it depends on your ability to to balance those perspectives and then and then to foster some sources of information that you believe are most credible and stick with them, but not exclusively continue to look at conflicting views so that you become a more informed and 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 balanced. The truth is usually somewhere in the middle. So then let's go back to one of our questions we want to answer, Mike. With all these choices in front of us, can we simplify this? We are going to continue to say more choices out there. That doesn't mean each one of us individually wants all of those choices. So we will continue to say what's important to us, what are we going to buy, and for some of that, for some of for many of us, that'll be a fairly narrow range of choices. And and we will we will we are habitual eaters. As I said earlier, the best predictor of future uh, future purchases are current purchases. So many of us, I still eat very much. What do I feel like? I buy products that I know that I like. I do experiment. I like to experiment. My wife and I will cook uh, new things sometimes, but we also have our old standbys. And, and, and so for many of us, it still is relatively simple. What are we going to have for dinner? In our household, it's What's in the fridge? Uh, what's uh, on on some days? It's what can we do relatively quickly because we're running in late and leaving early and those sorts of things. I think to to many degrees we can make the choice to make food simple and to uh, and to have those meals. What's for dinner is based on the choices we make and and. The, the fact that there is more and more noise out there uh, doesn't mean that we have to consider all of that noise. So I think there's a real opportunity to say, what do I like? What do I feel like? Make decisions, validate those decisions on an ongoing basis, but then say, I'm going to eat what I like. I'm going to eat uh, what makes me comfortable. I'm going to eat based on what's important to me. Uh, I think it doesn't have to get overly complicated. Dara agrees with that idea of making it simpler. After all, food to her shouldn't be so hard. I want people to make their food choices based on what they want, not on what they sh think they should be eating. And I think that 
that's the the really underlying problem for what when people are trying to decide what to eat for dinner. You know, they may crave a bowl of you know pasta or something, but think, oh, I shouldn't eat that, so I'm not going to. And that's when it gets hard to decide what to eat because you're trying to navigate. I really feel like this, but I know I you you think that you shouldn't eat it for whatever reason. So that's I think that's a big problem. Then heading toward the idea of eating more of what we want, is there something that can help us down that path? We look to our kids to help us with that because children are the best at that. They eat when they're hungry, they stop when they fall, they eat when they want. So if we all could get back to eating that way, I think that would be ideal. But how do you how do you actually do that? Is it's challenging. It's hard to break, you know, a cycle of dieting or restrictive eating or this fear-based eating. It's it's really hard to break that. So I think it's just about kind of small steps to just get back to relaxing about your food. You know, all food is we have to remember it's just food. Everything is food. Um, and try to just try to, you know, retune our bodies to listen to our hunger and our fullness cues and go with what we want to eat and know that, you know, you're you're going to be okay. Relax. Well, that's always easier said than done, but maybe worth the effort of at least trying to take it easier and make it easier. The other piece of the puzzle, though, isn't just about all these outside forces impacting what we think we should and shouldn't eat, but it's also the daily grind of it. Mike mentioned that idea of making something relatively quickly some nights, based on what's in the house or the fridge. Some days, though, I might as well be staring off into space because I'd accomplish the same thing as I move from one cupboard to another, staring at food, wondering if I have anything to eat. So I asked Dara, how do you get past that piece? I think that you, you know, you, you have to figure out kind of what makes you feel good, what you're eating, and you'll tune into what, how foods affect your body and how they make you feel. And then by just going to the grocery store and keeping that in mind and stocking your pantry with foods that you enjoy eating, that you know you can make a meal within minutes. Um, you know, we always have some pantry staples on hand, certain things we keep, keep in the fridge and freezer at all times. So when you go there and you have nine minutes to make dinner before you're rushing out to whatever programs you're going to or putting your kids to bed, you always have those options there available to you because you've set yourself up that way to have them there. So you don't have to be polarized thinking, oh, I have these foods available, I have eggs and I have bread, okay, I can make a meal, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. you don't have to be, doesn't have to take a thousand hours in the kitchen. And then go even a step further. We try to recommend people, you know, sit down on the weekend or whenever you have that time, take like even just half an hour to do some meal planning. You know, here's how my week's going to go. And then you take that with you to the grocery store. You have your list and you, so you can stock your house with foods that, um, you know, you can make a meal of and you know what's kind of what's on the docket. Maybe you take some time to chop up the vegetables on the weekend so they're available, wash your fruit, you know, make any sauces, cook up a large batch of grains. So you have those foods available. So you always have kind of the start to a meal right on at your hands. I know I have this idea that I don't have time to meal prep, but as you said, probably saving me time the rest of the week in fighting to figure out what we should have. Yeah, you know, you put on your, I put on my favorite podcast or I put on, you know, a show on Netflix or while the kids are napping and it really doesn't take long. And I think the more that you do it and the more you're in the kitchen, the easier it's going to get. I think it can be very daunting to start or people start Googling, you know, recipes that have 10,000 steps. You know, it doesn't have to be complicated cooking. You could just do you know, you bake up a large a bunch of potatoes, you bake up some chicken, you bake up some vegetables, like all in the oven, and then you have that stuff on hand always. Like, it doesn't have to be a five-course, five-star dining experience every time, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. Even like, just like boiling yeah. pasta. You know, you made pasta. That's still a meal. You just cooked a meal for your family. Like, ultimately, the most important thing is just that your family and your kids are fed, whatever it is, right? And I think we have to stop overthinking it so much. 
Well, overthinking it does seem to be one of the big problems and common denominators between what Mike and Dara had to say. It sounds possible around here. Let's hope things get easier on your end too. Want to know more about where your food comes from in Canada? FarmFood360.ca gives you a 360-degree view of Canadian agriculture. There are dozens of videos featuring real Canadian farmers answering your questions about food, farming, and how it's all connected. You can even take virtual tours and see exactly what it's like to live and work on different Canadian farms. To learn more about Canadian agriculture, visit FarmFood360.ca. Who really cares about what you eat? You do. And these 200 plus food experts. Bestfoodfacts.org connects you with leading university experts on food and farming in North America. With over 500 questions answered and new content weekly, it's a dependable source available across all social channels. Get the details you want from credible people who've dedicated their entire careers to the study of food. You care about what you eat, so take time to digest the facts. Visit bestfoodfacts.org today. Next time on Food Bubble, we head inside your mouth and literally find out how things taste. We find out some of your taste buds may have something to do with your genetics, so blame your parents for that chip craving. And we also find out how you go from hating some foods as kids, just ask my kids about their feelings on onions, to liking them and the idea that maybe you can speed up that in your kids. That's next time on Food Bubble. Food Bubble is produced by Jess Campbell and Jess Nicholson. We put it together here at Fresh Air Media. Hopefully you've enjoyed the first few episodes now that you have an idea of what we're aiming to do and some of the questions we're aiming to answer. I hope you'll take the time to ask a few of your own. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, all with the handle Fresh Air Farmer. And if we tackle anything you think your friends should hear, well, don't be shy and pass it on to them too. Until next week.